Amen. Do you believe that this morning, that as a child of God, you are not forsaken? Amen. I don't know about you, but when I hear that, I'm reminded of that. Uh, it, just, it just energizes me, just fires me up. And I want to go get a super soaker and uh, get down there in front of the gates of hell and just have at it, you know. Um, open your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. And uh, this morning, uh, as we kind of alluded to already, I am so excited to be able to celebrate all that Christ has done for us. Um, I, I don't know why it is this way, but sometimes we come into church and we're just in routine mode, right? We're just doing what we do in church. And sometimes uh, we're going through these, you know, routines and there's nothing wrong with the routine, but sometimes we forget in the moment of what we're worshiping or how we're worshiping and the way we're worshiping, we're forgetting who we're worshiping. And the fact that we are worshiping a savior who is beyond compare, who is risen and who is conqueror, who has given us a victory in Christ through salvation and it will never end. We have eternal life in Jesus Christ. And so this morning uh, we are going to be excited to be able to walk through this time of looking at the, the last supper and what did that look like for the the disciples, for Christ, what can we learn from those things in just a few moments in a passage here in Luke 22. But then I want to let you know in in just probably next week, if the Lord would align it in the way that I think it's going to go. Next week, we're going to take some time next week and we're just going to talk about worshiping him. And we're just going to talk about why we worship him and and just the beauty in that. And we're going to spend some time just enjoying worship because I don't know about you, but sometimes we can fall into these routines where we, we don't really engage in the worship that's before us. Um, we don't engage in the worship as the church. Um, I think what happens, and I'll give you a little bit of a, a snapshot, and we've said this before, um, in our church culture today, what I mean by that is nothing bad. It's just the way church has been for a long time in our country is that right now you're seated, right, in a chair, and you're looking up at me, and I'm on a raised platform. Is there anything wrong with having stages in church? No. But the reason that I bring that up is because sometimes we start worship or watching the worship on the stage or kind of watching how other people worship. And we forget that we're engaging in that as well as the body of Christ. And so we're going to talk about that next week. Like how, how do we worship? Why do we worship? And we're just going to spend some time praising our Savior. We're just going to spend some time just enjoying who he is. And so I hope you're okay with that. But if you, if you aren't, Heaven's going to be really, really a bummer for you if you don't enjoy those kind of things. Um, you're not going to be sure what to do with yourself when you get there. But we, I, want to, I want to spend some time next week just really engaging in that, talking through that, because I feel like every now and then I know I need a reminder of why we do this. Like, like why did we come this morning? Why did you get up and drive on these not-so-great roads? Why did you get dressed and take a shower, we hope, and get ready, Right? And get out of bed on a Sunday morning when you probably didn't feel like getting out of bed on a Sunday morning. Like, why do we do this? And we're going to talk about that next week. And, and not exhaustively. We're not going to, you know, look at every single aspect. But I want to unpack that next week. And so I pray you would join us for that. Um, and, and we're going to do some things. I'm going to I have some ideas of some things we might do a little bit um, different. And so hopefully that will be an amazing time of worship. But this morning, um, I'm excited to be able to engage in something that the church has been united in for 2,000 years. Like, let that sink in for a second. You're going to partake in something, and we've said this before, but I, again, I want us to recognize this, the, the value in this, the, the connection to past generations of believers. You're going to do something this morning that has connected the very body of Christ. By the way, in most cases, cross denominational lines, cross all those other things, connected the body of Christ for 2,000 years. 
It's looked a little different. The elements might be a little different at times. But when you partake in the Lord's Supper, you're doing something that the early believers, we're talking first century believers, did and practiced what you're going to do this morning. Now, I don't know what that does for you when you let that kind of sink in. But to me, that just brings me a sense of just unity and oneness with the church. Just this feeling of connection to something so much greater than just me as an individual. It's connecting me to something that is, has lasted 2,000 years. Let me ask you a question. Has the world changed and gone through some pretty crazy things in the last 2,000 years? But if you think about it, all the crazy things that's happened in the world in the last 2,000 years, all the, the wars and the violence and all the craziness that's happened, the constant that we can see is the church has remained, has grown stronger, right? Has held its footing by the grace of God, has made disciples and preached the gospel and reached places all over the world with the gospel. And we are connected to that lineage and we get to partake in that this morning. When you study scripture, we're not going to go too depth, in-depth in this, but when you study scripture, there are two ordinances that are given to the local church, to the body of Christ. That is the, the ordinance of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those are the two things that the Lord Jesus commissioned to the church to continue to do after he resurrected and ascended. These are the things the church carries out as far as practices of the church that are defined in scripture. These are the things we do. This is why we baptize new believers, and this is why we partake in the Lord's Supper. As a follower of Christ, once we receive the grace of God through salvation, we are baptized. This baptism is a public identification with Christ and his church. Some will ask, when should I be baptized? Once I understand I need to be baptized, when do I get baptized? And the answer from Scripture is, as soon as possible after receiving Christ. Now, let me just clarify this. There are some groups and some churches and denominations that teach that children need to be baptized in order to be saved later on. Some teach that baptism as a child is necessary. Uh, the Bible teaches pretty clearly, uh, in my opinion, I think it's very, very clear, and our church holds this view, that, that baptism is for someone who has already placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now, if a six, seven-year-old child, a five, six, seven-year-old child has, with knowledge, confessed their sins, they understand sin, they understand the need of repentance, they understand the gospel, they've received Christ their Savior, I have no issues with that child being baptized with parental consent, obviously. I think that's amazing that when children come to know Christ, I always remember, was it Joanne Blount, I think, that said she was saved at like four years old or something? Tom used to tell me that, that when she was saved at four years old and never doubted it a day in her life. That's pretty amazing. I mean, children can come to know the Lord. And so, by the way, a little side note, as you're praying for these children, as you're praying over these kids at the table out here, don't think for a second because they're younger or in nursery that somehow God is limited in what he can do in their life. You are engaging the very God of all creation and asking him to intervene in these children's lives. And I'm telling you, you are not just praying for some kid in the church. And you are praying for, number one, someone's son or daughter. You're praying for someone that God loves beyond compare. And you're praying for someone that's going to be a missionary, an evangelist, a pastor, a, a teacher of God's word. Someone's going to go across the globe and share the gospel. And you get to have a part in that by just, by just taking five minutes and praying over that name. Isn't that, isn't that amazing how God uses us that way? 
And you know what happens is sometimes we get so busy, we don't take advantage of that. And we miss out on that blessing of being able to be a part of that child's growth. And by the way, that's another thing that connects us as the body of Christ. We are one body. So we pray for each other. That's not just, oh, that's so-and-so's daughter. Man, it's like, no, that's, that's my brother or sister in Christ if they know the Lord. And I pray they'll come to know the Lord if they don't already. Speaking of children, I'm sure that's future singer right there, right? Testifying, okay? But this idea of baptism, let me just kind of stay. I want to kind of talk about baptism a little bit before we get to the Lord's Supper. But baptism, when should I get baptized? Immediately following your salvation experience, as soon as possible, receive that baptism. And why? It's not for salvation. It's not to get closer to God. It's not meriting anything in your salvation. It's a public display, a public testimony of you saying, I have placed my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I'm publicly displaying that belief and that faith before the church. And I'm connecting to this local body, this local church. It's a sign of that relationship. Again, uh, this is the example we have in Scripture. We see this over and over again. This is also why we baptize by immersion, which means to submerge under the water and rise out of the water. Uh, what best symbolizes a death, a burial, and a resurrection? The idea of going under the water and coming out of the water. This is how Jesus was baptized. This is every baptism in, known, in Scripture that we know of went this way. And so when you understand this, baptism is a very, very important key in our Christian walk. Again, baptism is not a part of salvation, but it is a key step in our journey with Christ. We are showing others that we are not ashamed of the gospel and we are not ashamed of Christ. We are publicly demonstrating that we are dead to our old selves and walk in the newness of life. And so you might be thinking, why are you spending so much time on baptism? I thought we were going to talk about the Lord's Supper. What does that have to do with the Lord's Supper? I want you to get this statement and I want you to understand what we're talking about this morning. Baptism demonstrates our initial identification with Christ. Baptism demonstrates our initial identification with Christ and his church. The Lord's Supper celebrates our continual identification with Christ and his church. See, God, through Christ, has given us two ordinances to practice as a church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism demonstrates our initial connection with Christ, coming to know Christ as Savior, repenting of our sins, walking away from the old self, rising again and in the newness of life to walk after the things of Christ, to honor him and obey him and please him and make disciples for him and share Christ for him. And all that we do, worship him, is a result of that initial identification, that initial step of coming to know Christ communion or the Lord's Supper is that demonstrating of that continual identification with Christ and his church. It's an amazing thing to see how these two things are intricately, intricately connected. So think of it like this. Baptism is like the wedding. Baptism is like the wedding, the public ceremony that declares the commitment between husband and wife. Communion would be like a continual renewal, like celebrating an anniversary between husband and wife, where we affirm again our commitment. So baptism is like that wedding ceremony where that beginning of that relationship starts. And then communion is that anniversary celebration. We celebrate and affirm that not only have we been committed to each other, we desire to continue that commitment. And that's what communion represents. Just as baptism should not be neglected, so should communion not be neglected. It is the only act of worship in the New Testament that we have prescribed instructions for, whereas other expressions of worship are not as clearly defined in practice. 
Baptism, we understand, is by immersion. But it still can take place at a lake, at, at a river, in a baptismal tub. There's some different flexibility there. When you read of the communion, it is defined. We take of the bread. We take of the cup. We do it for this reason. We do it to show this purpose and this, this way we glorify God. It's defined. And that tells me it's important. It was important to those that penned scripture. It was important to the Lord. So let's look at Luke chapter 22 and walk through this passage and see how we can gain a greater insight and wisdom as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning. So Luke 22 and verse 14 says here, And when the hour was come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. And he said unto them, With desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will, no, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took bread and gave thanks and break it and gave it unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise, also after the cup, uh, I'm sorry, likewise, also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. I know Pastor Greg prayed, but let's ask God to affirm these things in our hearts and minds. Father, we ask, Lord, that we would understand the importance of what we're doing today. That it unites not only the body of Christ throughout generations, but it renews and reminds us of the relationship we have with Christ today. That it's a continual renewal of that understanding that you gave yourself for us. You died on that cross. You were buried and rose again. And today, as we've already alluded to, Lord, being a day that we mark on our calendars to celebrate and show love to one another, I pray that we would not neglect to understand that you showed great love, greater love than we could ever understand by giving yourself for us. No greater love than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And you demonstrated that love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so, Lord, I pray that we would leave this morning as was already sung so beautifully. And we would hear the clear message of Calvary is you declaring you love us. Not because we've earned your love, not because we're good enough, not because we've gone to church enough, not because we've done enough but because you chose to love us. Now, when we receive that salvation, we can in turn love you with all of us. And so, Father, I pray that you would open up our hearts and minds to all that you have for us. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for every person that is here. Thank you for those that are watching online, Lord. I pray that you would be glorified above all things, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Here we read of the last supper that Jesus had with his disciples before going to the cross. And there's a lot in this passage that we could spend a lot of time on. But I just want to look at these few verses and kind of unpack just a few keys that I think we could take away from during this meal. So some keys to note during this last supper or this last meal. The first thing we have to note is that Jesus desired to spend time with them. Jesus desired to spend time with his disciples. Look at, again, verse 15. And he said unto them, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I mean, do you get that moment 
Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross. And he says, before I endure this suffering, I wanted to make sure that I sat with you. That I spent time with you. That I engaged in this meal with you. Now, we know that there's a lot that he's going to unpack in this meal. We're going to talk about a little bit what he even did before the meal even started. And how it impacted the disciples for their walk with Christ and for Christ. When you read the Gospels, you're going to notice that Jesus did all that he did for a couple key reasons. Everything Jesus did had a purpose, by the way. Could you imagine if your life was lived that way? Do you ever stop and think, what if I lived my life with the desire and the mindset that everything I did was with distinct purpose? No wasted time. And you might say, man, that sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> sounds like a lot of stress. Let me ask you a question. If I choose to spend a certain amount of time relaxing and resting, is that a waste of time? No. If I don't choose to do it here, guess what's going to happen? I'm going to burn out in about 12 to 14 days, and then I'm going to be resting because the doctor says you got to rest. Because I got ulcers and all other kinds of stuff going on. All right? See, we can we live our lives with purpose. I love that Jesus, when he lived his life on earth, displayed the need for purpose in everything that we say and do to honor God in all that we say and do. Which includes, again, even rest. So let's note this. Why did Jesus do what he did on earth? Well, a couple of things you can jot down. You can say it different ways, but here's a, a basic summary. Number one was to, and not in any specific order, but one of the things was to bless his creation. I mean, Jesus blessed his creation while he walked on earth, did he not? Every person he healed, they were blessed by him healing them. They were, he blessed his creation. They were encouraged and strengthened by him being there. Obviously, we see that one of the reasons he did what he did was to glorify the Father. Everything he did was to please the Father. Everything he, he said, every miracle he performed was to please the Father. But another key thing that we notice in the Gospels is that Jesus did so much of what he did to train up his disciples, to instruct his disciples, to, to lay a foundation before them that they would go out into the world and we're going to see in the book of Acts, they needed every bit of that teaching plus some. Amen. They needed all the teaching he gave. Then they needed the lesson again and again. And anyone need the same lesson more than once when you get with God? Anyone need that lesson more than once when God's trying to teach you something? Okay. Few people. The rest of you, we need to hang out because apparently, man, you got it down. That's impressive. I'm, you get it the first time God teaches it. I'm impressed. I don't know about you. I mean, I've, God has taught me the same lesson multiple times. Sometimes it's not as comfortable as the last time he tried to teach me. Anyone else? Amen. And as you're going through it, aren't you sitting there going like, why didn't I get this the last time that he was trying to teach me this? These disciples, man, they just, for three and a half years, walked with Christ, ate meals with him, hung out with him, which I've always thought the humanity of Christ gets a little neglected. Have you ever been with, you know, 12 guys on a camping trip, around a fire, fishermen, just average guys? I mean, someone's pulling somebody's finger. That's what we're getting at. Somebody is making some joke. I mean, it's just going to happen, right? But Jesus spent time with these guys, and he did it to try to encourage them, to strengthen them, and to train them, to teach them and instruct them so that when they go out into the world, and man, when you read the book of Acts, we don't read of what every single disciple did following the resurrection and ascension of Christ, but we read of a few. Church history tells us about a handful of others. And I'm telling you, these men changed the world. In the book of Acts, it says they literally turned the city upside down. That means that their teaching was so contrary to the cultural norm that people were blown away by it. And then not only did they hear teaching that was contrary, guess what else they saw? Lifestyles that were contrary. 
Now, were the disciples perfect? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But they desired to live what they preached. And, you know, one of the things we see is that they, they demonstrated a willingness to give themselves for the gospel. James, the son of Zebedee, James and John, uh, two brothers. Jesus calls them the sons of thunder because they were just passionate, zealous, sometimes over-the-top guys. Uh, These are the guys that when the Samaritan village said, no, Jesus, you can't stay here, these guys' solution was to call down fire and consume the whole village. You think you got a bad Yelp review on something, that's hardcore. That's like a whole different level negative review. What, your bed and breakfast won't serve Jesus? Fire rain down. Like, consume them. That's what's going to happen. But this James we read about in Acts was one of the first disciples to be martyred. To have his life taken for the cause of Christ. And he did it willingly. And, And we read of others that did it joyfully. But they needed this instruction. You see, Jesus desired to be with them because it was what they really needed. They needed him to be there. So he desired to be with them for relationship and instruction to encourage them. We know that if we compare Luke's accounts with the other gospel accounts, that just before this meal, Jesus washed the disciples' feet. He then instructs them to have the same servant's heart for one another. I mean, just, I can't say that without identifying this. Could you imagine the Savior of the world, the one that in Genesis 1 said, let us make man in our image. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. I mean, that same God that was there in the beginning, the one that created the very feet he's going to wash, humbled himself and did the work of a servant. Then he instructs them, hey, if I can do this for you, if I can serve you this way, you guys need to serve each other in a way that is completely humble not pride-filled leadership. Jesus did not sit in just an ivory tower shouting down commands. He walked among us. He got down into the grit and the grime of everyday life. He lived the example before us and instructed us to do the same. Unfortunately, as I just alluded to, the disciples didn't get this lesson the first time. And actually, some of them struggle with this even until the Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2. The disciples fully not, do not fully grasp the lesson. However, look at verses 24 through 27. So Jesus washes their feet. He says, I want to be with you so that I can experience this with you. I want to teach you these things. I want you to learn these things. And look at verse 24 of Luke 22. And there was also a strife among them, the disciples, which of them should be accounted the greatest? And he said unto them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But ye shall not be so. But he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief as he that doth serve. For whether is greater, he that sitteth at meat or he that serveth, is not he that sitteth at meat, but I am among you as he that serveth. Do you know what he's saying there, that phrase? He that sits at meat or he that serves us, serves the one that's sitting at meat. That's the one that's the wealthy person that's sitting there waiting for the food to be served to them. And the servant would come and bring the food for them. And he's saying, hey, in our world today, which is greater? The one that's serving or the one that's being served? And you can answer the same question. In our world today, our cultural understanding, not biblical, but cultural, who is greater in the world's eyes? The one serving or the one being served? 
That's just human nature. But Jesus says, hey, I'm one among you. I serve, is what he's saying. Didn't I just humble myself and wash your feet, and yet you're going to argue amongst yourselves who's the greatest? By the way, I'm going to go to a cross in just a few hours. I'm going to die for your sins. But you keep arguing about how you're greatest. And you see the silliness of this, and they didn't understand it, but Jesus was working with them and teaching them, and he spent time with them. And I want to say this. We experience the same thing today in our walk with Christ. He meets with us, does he not? You might say, man, if Jesus sat with me in person, then I would really be changed. That's not true. That's not true. He sits with you every time you open his word and you spend time with him. He's with you. He's there. He's teaching you and he's instructing you and he's guiding you. He's laying it before you so that we would go from that time with him, trained up, encouraged, by the way, equipped by the spirit of God, fully given all that we need to do what he's called us to do so that we would go out and change our world. But sometimes we get it in our heads that we just need to be great in the world's eyes. We want position and power and authority and financial success and all this other nonsense that really means nothing. And Jesus says, hey, you really want to be the greatest? You really want to be the most impactful in your world? Just start serving others. But that's so contradictory to the message we hear today, isn't it? And in our world today, it's he that dies with the most toys wins. He that has the biggest house and the most in the bank account. I'm telling you right now, Peter was right when he said thieves can break through and steal. Moth and rust and all that, it corrupts. But there's something that's uncorruptible, or incorruptible rather. It's undefiled. And it is your relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we build on that foundation. You see, something we need to know as we look at this Last Supper that Jesus spent with his disciples, he desired to spend time with them. And by the way, he desired to spend time with them even though they didn't get the lesson. Even though they weren't clicking, even though it wasn't making sense, he still desired to spend time with them and he desires to spend time with you even when we don't get it. And I don't know about you, but that's an encouragement to me that he desires to spend time with me even when we don't get it. I want to move on here. Another thing we need to note as we walk through this passage is in verse 16. Verse 16, for I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So he's giving them this idea. This is why we call this the last supper, right? The last meal that he has with them. Jesus is telling them that, in, that this is their last Passover. Remember what we call the last supper or communion took place during the Jewish Passover meal. A time of celebration and praise for God's deliverance of his people from Egyptian slavery. We go all the way back and we read in the book of Exodus, the first Passover. Jesus is making it clear that there would be no more Passover on God's calendar. The next feast will be the kingdom feast. He's saying, listen, this is, this is it. This is the last Passover. This is the last time we're going to do this. Wiersbe, in his commentary, says it this way. He saw beyond the suffering to the glory, beyond the cross to the crown, And in his love, he reached out to include his friends. He saw beyond the momentary meal, beyond the cross and the suffering, he saw the joy that was set before him, as Hebrews says. The truth is, it is not the blood of lambs that grants us life, but the blood of the Lamb of God that takes away our sin and grants us eternal life. You see, in the Passover meal, they would take lamb's blood and they would paint their doorposts. Then the spirit of death or the death angel, whatever you want to call it, would pass over 
sparing those inside. And that blood represented a covering over them, that they were covered, they were washed, if you will. And see, they would do that for a long time, sacrificing animals, and the blood of those animals would cover their sin for a season. But Jesus is the one that John says, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. You see, the blood of lambs was for a season. But when Jesus gave himself on the cross and he died on that cross, his blood was shed that we might have eternal life. Not the covering of sin, but the removal of sin. Jesus used the leftover elements of the Passover and re-signified them as his body and blood, which will be broken and spilled out for us. The Moody Commentary says this, Jesus viewed his death as sacrificial and victorious. I don't know about you, but that, that hit me. I love that. Jesus saw his death on the cross as sacrificial and victorious. He didn't just give himself as a sacrifice. He gave himself as a sacrifice and was raised again victorious over death and sin and hell. And then he says, we are more than conquerors in Christ we are more than conquerors because we take part in that victory. Thirdly, I want to note, not only do we see that Jesus desired to spend time with them, not only do we see Jesus is re-signifying these elements and saying the Passover is no longer needed because I am now that lamb. I am now giving myself for you. And now we celebrate what he has done for us. But also we see in verses 19 through 20, a continuation of that thought is Jesus is establishing a new covenant with them. Jesus is establishing a new covenant. Verses 19 through 20. Let's look at it again. And he took bread and gave thanks and break it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise, also the cup after, su after supper saying, this cup is the new Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. New Testament, new covenant, new promise. He's fulfilled, fulfilled the old covenants. He's fulfilled that. He's answered everything that was required to be the spotless lamb of God. He's fulfilled every law. He has done everything that is necessary. And now he's saying, I fulfilled the old covenant. Now I'm offering to you a new covenant, a new promise. One that is based not on what you do for God in law. Although we'll talk about it in a minute here. It's not really what it was, but that's what it became but more about what Jesus did for us by fulfilling the law, offering to us eternal life. You see, this is a vital moment for the disciples and it is also vital for our understanding as Christians. We are under a new promise or covenant. One author said it well. It is the point of transition between two economies. It is the point of transition between two economies. Meaning the way in which God interacted with man and called man to interact with himself was going to change through the cross. The old covenant was still by faith and grace. However, there was a weight of law and the need for continual sacrifice. In the new covenant, we rest in the sacrifice of Christ, who once and for all was offered for sin. Jot it down. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 1 through 18. Let me just pause for a second here. If you're at all excited, at all thankful, at all joyful, that you don't have to fear 
and waits and wonder, was the sacrifice received when the priest goes in? But you stand victorious, not in the continual daily sacrificing, but in the finished and finalized work of Christ. Say amen. Amen. If you are thankful that you don't have to fear those things, but Jesus Christ has sealed you unto the day of redemption once and for all, then we can be joyful in his name. We can be thankful in his name and we can live in a way that reflects that joy. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the completed word of God. We are under grace, held in the hand of Christ, which is held in the Father's hand. Stop and think for a moment here. You hold in your hands, whether on a device or in print form, the completed revelation of God's word. That saints at one time had portions of the Old Testament, maybe the Old Testament, but they didn't have the fullness of the New Testament. Even as it was being compiled and and written, there were still regions of believers that didn't have exposure to it just yet. And do you realize that, that we have the complete word of God? That we can read and study all that God has done throughout not only the Old Testament, but even in the establishing of the church. And do you realize there are people groups right now all over our world that don't have this available to them? That this has not been translated into every single language that they know of in the world today? And so let's step back and thank God that we have his word today. That we have the spirit of God, the author of the word of God to reveal the word of God to us. The truth is our God is a promise keeping God. He was faithful before he fulfilled the old Testament and established a new covenant, dying on the cross for our sins and rising again. And the reason we need to note that is if God was a promise keeping God, if he was faithful before, then we can know and trust that he is faithful now and he will keep his promise now. Again, why does that matter to the Christian? Because you don't have to live in the fear of loss of salvation. That if I don't do enough, if I don't keep doing enough, if I don't keep doing enough, God will take it from me. If I sin this sin, God will take it from me. No, no, no. The Bible is very clear. Again, you didn't earn it. You received it by grace. You can't lose it. You keep it by grace as he keeps you in his hand. So one more thing I want to point out before we move to communion. Jesus knew who would betray him. Luke 22, look at verses 21 through 23. So Jesus wants to spend this time with them. He wants to teach them and train them. He's establishing this understanding of the final Passover that they would need to to partake in, a new covenant that's coming. And during all of this, he knew who would betray him. Verse 21. But behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goeth, as it was determined, but woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to inquire among themselves which of them it was that should do this thing. There's a phrase there in verse 21. But behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table. Now, the person that he's talking about is sitting so close to him that his hand is literally next to Jesus's hand on the table. Think about that. The man that's going to betray him, his hand is so close because they're sitting side by side. Note in the tradition of the Passover, Jesus being in this case, the host would have met his disciples at the door with what is called a kiss of peace. Now, that means that when Judas walked in the door, 
if it was according to tradition, now scripture doesn't define this for us in this passage, but if they followed the traditional norm for Passover, Jesus would have greeted his disciples with a kiss of peace. Now I know in our culture, that sounds really, really weird, right? Like when you came in today, you got a handshake, you probably didn't get a kiss, right? I don't think, uh, Chad, were you kissing anybody when they were coming in today? Okay, no, he's like going, please don't ask me to do that. It'll be the last time I hand out bulletins. I'm never doing that again, please, right? It would have been a, it it was a kiss on the cheek, right? Paul talks about the idea of a holy kiss, right? That kissing on the cheek. Imagine for a moment, Jesus kissing Judas on the cheek. And just in a short time later, Judas is going to return that kiss, isn't he? Not as a kiss of peace, but a kiss of betrayal. But Jesus goes through with it. He does it. Also, we don't read that Jesus skipped Judas in the foot washing ceremony that he would have washed Judas's feet as well. Again, I got a note for a moment here. That's an amazing testimony to the grace of God. Because you know what? He gives it, or offers it rather, to anyone. Judas had just as much of an opportunity to receive the grace as everyone else did. Every Pharisee that heard the teaching of Christ had just the same opportunity to hear the grace that was being offered if they chose to hear it. Those are Jesus's words. If you want to hear, you can hear. It's open to anyone. Anyone can hear. But you've got to choose to want to hear it. Ironically, again, we see this dynamic unfolding. Another account says this in Matthew 26, 23. Uh, Matthew says this, He that dips his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. Again, this implies they're sitting side by side or right next to each other, that they would dip their hand, their, their bread, in the same bowl. They were, there were bowls of oil that the bread was dipped into. So Judas to dip in the same bowl as Jesus would simply be sitting right next to him. Some have said that John was on Jesus's right side while Judas was on his left. John being the one that wrote the gospel of John, the one that's called the beloved. So why does this matter? Why do we spend time unpacking all of this? Who Judas was that Jesus knew he would betray him. The truth is, I believe we can see the same today in the church. We can see a sense of this or a type of this in the church today. There are those who sit very close to Jesus in a religious sense. They sit with Jesus. They're before him. They're in his presence. You come to church and you sit before the Lord. You sit before the teaching of his word. You sit close to him in a religious sense. However, you do not have a relationship with him. And the truth is, if persecution came or became uncomfortable to associate with Christ, they would betray him and just walk away. Why? Because they don't have a relationship with Jesus. They're just sitting near him. They're kind of in his presence. It's comfortable. It's convenient. So I'll keep doing this until it's no longer comfortable or beneficial to me. Also, I have to note that when I read this passage, that all the disciples thought it could be them. I can't read that without noting that. Every one of the disciples said, could it be me? I mean, maybe I could do it. You know what that tells me is that, that, that they were regular, average, normal human beings. And they understood the temptation that they were exposed to and that they could fall just as easily as anyone else. They all know they were capable of such betrayal. Again, what a picture of us today. We all need his grace. Because left to ourselves, we would betray and deny Christ. This is why it is by grace we are saved through faith, because we all need his grace. Left to ourselves, we would walk away, but in Christ, we can remain firm in the gospel. 
So we remember what Christ did for us, and we do this in remembrance of him. We are able to have a continual connection to Christ through the new covenant that he established because he desires to spend eternity with you. Do you know the same desire he had to spend with his disciples to start that meal is the same desire he has to spend with you for all of eternity? We look back with love and adoration. We look back to what he did for us with love and adoration, but we look forward with great anticipation and great hope of his coming again. Do you know Jesus says, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. See, one day Jesus will return. And we don't know when that time will be. Lots of people try to come up with when that would be. The Bible makes it very clear. No man knows the hour. And so we wait with great anticipation. We look back with great love and adoration. We're thankful for the continual connection that we have with Christ today. And we look forward and say, Lord, we cannot wait for you to come again. But until you come, we're going to continue to show the world that we have this relationship with you, that your love changes lives and changes eternity. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer as the praise team comes to lead us in an invitation? Father, we thank you so much for this time of celebration and connection to you. Lord, that we take this time this morning to look back with adoration and love to see how we are connected and interconnected to past generations of believers that the church has stood upon the solid foundation of the work of Christ, the finished work of the cross. We learn from that. We grow in understanding that as we move forward as a church, as a body, as individuals, the followers of Christ, we move forward with our eyes enlightened to the same truth, that we don't stand on our own works and merits. We stand on the finished work of the cross. I pray that this communion would Remind us and affirm in our hearts and minds that we need you more than ever. That we can't do this on our own. I pray that it would remind us and affirm in our hearts that your grace has saved us. I pray that it would push us to be devoted to you as followers of Christ, to be willing to lay down our lives for you as you laid down your life for us. Lord, not necessarily as a martyr, but to lay down our life of convenience, a life of comfort, a life of selfishness, that we would just surrender all those things and say, Lord, my life is in your hands. Whatever you would have me to do, wherever you would have me to go, I pray that I would go and do and say whatever you lead me to do, say, and wherever you lead me to go, so that I could glorify you in all that I do. Father, thank you for this time. I pray that you would unite our hearts together, open our minds, and thank you for this. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning? Uh, we're going to be led in a song of invitation. Would you want to come and pray? Maybe you're there this morning and you would say, you know what? There's some things I need to work out. If you have some sin in your life, something you need to repent of and give to the Lord, this is the time to do it. His grace is offered to you. Whatever God is doing, would you come and prepare your hearts? Maybe you want to come and pray and say, God, just prepare my heart for communion. Help me to have the right heart and the right mind to receive this time of celebration. Don't worry about anyone else. This isn't for them. This is between you and God. So maybe you would come and pray and say, God, open my heart and mind to you. Affirm these things that I would be ready to receive what you have for me.